Section twenty three of A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley. Monsieur l'Abbé. The childhood of the Abbé Rosselo is as secret as his origin, and no man may know whether Belfort or Bavaria smiled upon his innocence. A like mystery enshrouds his early manhood, and the malice of his foes, who were legion, denounces him for a Jesuit of Innsbruck. But since he has lived within the eye of the world, his villainies have been revealed as clearly as his attainments, and history provides him no other rival in the corruption of youth than the infamous Thwackham. It is not every scholar's ambition to teach the elements, and Rosselo adopted his modest calling as a cloak of crime. No sooner was he installed in a mansion than he became the mansion's master, and henceforth he ruled his employer's domain with the tyrannical severity of a grand inquisitor. His soul wrapped in the triple brass of arrogance, he even dared to lay his hands upon food before his betters were served, and presently, emboldened by success, he would order the dinners, reproach the cook with too lavish a use of condiments, and descend with insolent expostulation into the kitchen. In a week he had opened the cupboards upon a dozen skeletons, and made them rattle their rickety bones up and down the draughty staircases, until the inmates shivered with horror, and the terrified neighbours fled the haunted castle as a lazar-house. Once in possession of a family secret he felt himself secure, and henceforth he was free to browbeat his employer and to flog his pupil to the satisfaction of his waspish nature. Moreover, he was endowed with all the insight and effrontery of a trained journalist. So sedulous was he in his search after truth, that neither man nor woman could deny him confidence. And, as vinegar flowed in his veins for blood, it was his merry sport to set wife against husband and children against father. Not even were the servants safe from his watchful inquiry, and housemaids and governesses alike entrusted their hopes and fears to his malicious keeping. And when the house had retired to rest, with what a sinister delight did he chuckle over the frailties and infamies, a guilty knowledge of which he had dragged from many an unwilling sinner. To oust him when installed was a plain impossibility for this ringer of hearts was only too glib in the surrender of another scandal, and as he accepted the last scurrility with Christian resignation, his unfortunate employer could but strengthen his vocabulary and patiently endure the presence of this smiling, demoniacal tutor. But a too villainous curiosity was not the abbe's capital sin. Not only did he entertain his leisure with wrecking the happiness of a united family, but he was an enemy, open and declared, of France. It was his amiable pastime at the dinner-table, when he had first helped himself to such delicacies as tempted his dainty palate, to pronounce a pompous eulogy upon the German emperor. France, he would say, with an exultant smile, is a papery which exists merely to be the football of Prussia. She has but one hope of salvation, still the monster speaks, and that is to fall into the benign occupation of a vigorous race. Once upon a time, the infamy is scarce credible, he was conducting his young charges past a town hall, over the lintel of whose door glittered those proud initials R.F. 
do they stand for? asked this demon Barlow. And when the patriotic Tommy hesitated for an answer, the preceptor exclaimed with ineffable contempt, Ras the fool! It is no wonder, then, that this foe of his fatherland feared to receive a letter openly addressed. Rather, he would slink out under cover of night and seek his correspondence at the post-restante, like a guilty lover or a British tourist. The Chateau de Prel was built for his reception. It was haunted by a secret which none dare murmur in the remotest garret. There was no more than a whisper of murder in the air, but the Marquis shuddered when his wife's eye frowned upon him. True, the miserable Minaldo had disappeared from his seminary ten years since, but threats of disclosure were uttered continually, and respectability might only be purchased by a profound silence. Here was the Abbe's most splendid opportunity, and he seized it with all the eagerness of a greedy temperament. The Marquise, a wealthy peasant who was rather at home on the wild hillside than in her stately castle, became an instant prey to his devilish intrigue. The governess, an antic old maid of fifty-seven, whose conversation was designed to bring a blush to the cheek of the most hardened dragoon, was immediately on terms of so frank an intimacy that she flung bread-pellets at him across the table, and joyously proposed, if we may believe the priest on his oath, to set up housekeeping with him, that they might save expense. Two high-spirited boys were always on hand to encourage his taste for flogging, and had it not been for the Marquis, the Abbe's cup would have been full to overflowing. But the Marquis loved not the lean ogling instructor of his sons, and presently began to assail him with all the abuse of which he was master. He charged the Abbe with unspeakable villainy. Salop and Saligo were the terms in which he would habitually refer to him. He knew the rascal for a spy, and no modesty restrained him from proclaiming his knowledge. But whatever insults were thrown at the Abbe, he received with a grin, complacent as Shylock's. For was he not conscious that, when he liked, the pound of flesh was his own? With a fiend's duplicity he laid his plans of ruin and death. The Marquise, swayed to his will, received him secretly in the blue room, whose very colour suggests a guilty intrigue, though never, upon the oath of an abbé, when the key was turned in the lock. A journey to Switzerland had freed him from the haunting suspicion of the Marquis, and at last he might compel the wife to denounce her husband as a murderer. The terrified woman drew the indictment at the abbé's dictation, and when her husband returned to Saint-Amande, he was instantly thrust into prison. Nothing remained but to cajole the sons to an expressed hate of their father, and the last enormity was committed by a masterpiece of cunning. Your father's one chance of escape, argued this villain in a cassock, is to be proved an inhuman ruffian. Swear that he beat you unmercifully, and you will save him from the guillotine. All the dupes learned their lesson with a certainty which reflects infinite credit upon the abbé's method of instruction. For once in his life the abbé had been moved by greed as well as by villainy. His early exploits had no worse motive than the satisfaction of an inhuman lust for cruelty and destruction. But the Marquise was rich, 
and when once her husband's head were off, might not the abbe reap his share of the gathered harvest? The stakes were high, but the game was worth the playing, and Rosselot played it with spirit and energy, and to the last card. His appearance in court is ever memorable, and as his ferret eyes glinted through glass at the president, he seemed the villain of some middle-aged romance. His head, poised upon a lean bony frame, was embellished with a nose thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. His tightly compressed lips were an indication of the rascal's determination. Long as a day in Lent, that is how a spectator described him. And if ever a sinister nature glared through a sinister figure, the abbe's character was revealed before he parted his lips in speech. Unmoved he stood, and immovable. He treated the imprecations of the Marquis with a cold disdain. As the burden of proof grew heavy on his back, he shrugged his shoulders in weary indifference. He told his monstrous story with a cynical contempt which is scarce its equal in the history of crime. And priest as he was, he proved that he did not yield to the Marquis himself in the Rabelaisian amplitude of his vocabulary. He brought charges against the weird word of Prell with an insouciance and brutality which defeated their own aim. He described the vices of his master and the sins of the servants in a slang which would sit more gracefully upon an idle roisterer than upon a pious abbe. And his story ended, he leered at the court with the satisfaction of one who had discharged a fearsome duty. But his rascality overshot its mark. The Marquise, obedient to his priestly casuistry, displayed too fierce a zeal in the execution of his commands. And he took to flight, hoping to lose in the larger world of Paris the notoriety which his prowess won him among the poor despised Berrichons. He left behind, for our consolation, a snatch of philosophy which helps to explain his last and greatest achievement. Those who have money exist only to be fleeced. Thus he spake, with a reckless revelation of self. Yet the mystery of his being is still unpierced. He is traitor, schemer, spy. But is he an abbe? Perhaps not. At any rate, he once attended the mess de Moor, and was heard to mumble a credo, which, as every good Catholic remembers, has no place in that solemn service. End of section 23 Recording by Greg Lewin, Brood, Staffordshire, England End of a Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley